and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 25th of November with me, Ian Welsh. The COP27 meetings came to a conclusion a few days ago to try and identify some of the main positives and negatives for business. I spoke this week with journalist and commentator Mike Scott. Our take on what companies should be thinking about is coming up a bit later on. As is Innovation Forum's Natasha Bodnar, who introduces the themes and initial signed up participants for the Future of Food Conference in Amsterdam in May 2023. And if you've not already done so, this is your last chance to take part in the Innovation Forum Trend Survey. We've worked hard to make it straightforward and quick to complete. There's a link in the podcast description. Those taking part will get exclusive early access to the results and our take in the trends for 2023. The survey closes in the next few days. Now, though, it's time for some sustainable business news. The US Food and Drug Administration has declared a laboratory-grown meat product to be safe for human consumption for the first time. The Californian company Upside Foods has been given the green light to produce a product grown in a lab derived from living cells taken from chickens. The resultant meat product will not require the slaughter of any birds. The FDA has also indicated that it is ready to approve other similar products and is engaged with other companies with lab-grown meat in development. Singapore is the only country where such products are currently sold to consumers but many believe that the US move could mean a rapid growth in the sector that is widely accepted to have less environmental impact than traditional protein production. The Nespresso coffee brand from Nestle is to launch a pilot scheme for compostable paper-based coffee capsules in France and Switzerland in spring 2023, with the aim of rolling them out across Europe over a 12-month period. The pods have been developed over three years and are designed to meet increasing consumer demands for compostable packaging. They complement Nespresso's current aluminium coffee capsules. Nespresso says that the paper-based capsules are designed for home recycling. The aluminium pods have to be recycled via a network of 100,000 collection points in 70 countries that the company has established. The paper-based capsules are designed to be completely compatible with existing Nespresso machines. In the latest twist in an ongoing row about cocoa pricing, the authorities in Ghana and Côte d'Ivoire have threatened to punish companies that visit farms in the two countries to estimate future harvests, which is used to forecast future prices for the commodity. Around 70% of the world's cocoa is produced in the West African countries, and their cocoa trade bodies have already boycotted meetings of the World Cocoa Foundation in Brussels recently in protest at perceived undermining of the living income differential policy, which places a premium of $400 a tonne on cocoa to boost farm incomes. The latest row is around cocoa traders allegedly depressing the price of a separate premium, the origin differential, which is paid for quality and reliability of the crop. This differential has dropped significantly, effectively cancelling out the living income boost. How this all plays out is unclear, but what is certain is the need for the farmers to sell their beans given the importance of the cocoa sector to the economies of Ghana and Côte d'Ivoire. Some reflection on the outcomes for business from the COP27 meetings in Egypt is coming up shortly, but the COP process itself seems set for reform following the rather chaotic close to the meetings in Charles Sheikh. Reports have emerged that the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, under whose auspices the COP meetings are held, plans to review processes to make them more effective. Many participants expressed dissatisfaction with the handling of negotiations at COP27, including the limited time allowed for national teams to review draft communique texts and the seeming over-representation of the fossil fuel sector. That is, of course, not a new complaint. However, if nothing else, the COP process needs to be trusted and respected by all the parties involved. So what changes emerge before COP28 will be keenly monitored. The Innovation Forum team is working hard on developing our 2023 spring conference season. We will be discussing responsible sourcing and ethical trade, sustainable apparel and textiles, the future of food, and business and climate action on scope 3 emissions. More details on all of that will be given in the covering weeks, but do go to the Innovation Forum website for the latest and how to register at launch rate discounts. 
we will be back in Amsterdam to talk about the future of food on the 3rd and 4th of May. To find out how the conference is beginning to shape up, I spoke this week with Innovation Forum's Natasha Bodnar. Welcome back to the podcast, Natasha. Hi, Ian. So what's the focus of the 2023 event going to be? We've decided to focus the conference mainly around supply chain resilience. In particular, we'll be having a look at how food and drinks brands can adapt to market shifts and planetary pressures to deliver regenerative and resilient food systems. We've got a very large agenda with many, many detailed topics to get into. Excellent. Who's the conference for then? We've run this a few years now, so we're going to the fifth year. We're expected to have at least 200 delegates joining with a range of corporates, NGOs, suppliers, traders, development agencies, investors. Generally, the key stakeholders involved will be people who are defining, planning and implementing sustainable practices around agricultural supply chains. You mentioned big agenda. It's a very impressive agenda indeed. What are the highlights from the agenda for you at the moment? Yeah, as you mentioned, it's a large agenda. So there's many different areas. I think in terms of what I said, like the themes were around resilience, also regen. The sessions that stand up to me at the moment are that we've got one looking at supply chain resilience and food security, where we'll look at what leadership looks like in practice for food and drinks brands. And then the other big area is climate. So we've got various sessions looking at that. One being the roadmap to net zero, how to shift from climate commitments to climate action, I have another session looking at climate adaptation, so looking at the tools and technologies that can prepare and adapt farmers to the effects of climate change. Um, and then more on the regen side, another big session that, I, that I'm looking forward to is regenerative agriculture. What is the scope for scale and widespread adoption across supply chains globally? Those are the ones that jump out to me. It's probably worth stressing that we'll be looking at all those solutions. That's one thing that's come out for me over our events of the past year is really everybody's keen to look for solutions and to see what can work. Everyone's making a lot of commitments, a lot of really challenging commitments, and they need the tools to reach net zero and everything else. Really interesting to see the different solutions coming together. So who's already signed up to take part, Natasha? Had a really strong start. We've got lots of companies already involved. So Aldi, Sustainable Food Trust, Kraft Heinz, Tate and Lyle, Tesco, Grupo Bimbo, Danish Crown, Don Meats, Alhol Del Hayes, Barry Calibo, OFI, and actually quite a few more. So far, so good. Great. Well, that's some really big names there. How can our listeners get involved? Best way to get involved is to go onto our website, innovationform.com, and check out the Future of Food conference to register directly. We are currently on our launch rate deadline, which we will extend till the end of the month for podcast listeners. So if you go to the register page, just input podcast into the discount code link. And then the other way, if you have any questions or are looking at group discounts, then it's best to get in touch with me directly at natasha.bodner at innovationforum.co.uk. Great. Worth just emphasising that. So if you want to attend on the 3rd and 4th of May in Amsterdam, there's a 500 euro discount right now. And we'll extend that to the end of November for podcast listeners. Just type in podcast when you get to the checkout. All right, Natasha, nice to catch up. See you soon. Thanks, Ian. To assess some of the outcomes from the COP27 meetings in Sharm el-Sheikh, I caught up with business and climate journalist Mike Scott, a regular Innovation Forum contributor. We talked about some of the positives and negatives from the final agreement signed up by the national participants and what to look out for over the coming months. Mike, you and I were at COP26 last year and you've been reporting for us at Innovation Forum over the past 18 months on Climate Matters. What were your impressions of the outcomes from COP27 this year? 
there was a real sense of anticlimax about COP27 compared to Glasgow last year, where there was a big agreement reached on making real progress on the 1.5 degree target and all of that. This year, there were fewer headlines to talk about. There was a sense of lack of urgency from the hosts that contrasted quite sharply with the bustle of the UK team in Glasgow last year. Certainly a sense of anticlimax. Whilst those that were in Egypt have all said to me that there was a lot happening and there was certainly a sense of everybody being there to a greater or lesser extent, the sense of real pace was perhaps not there this time. In terms of positives though, how important do you think is the agreement on loss and damage? I think it's really important that it's in the final agreement for the first time. It's something that the least developed countries who are going to suffer most from climate change, who are suffering most from climate change, and who are least responsible for it, They've been pushing for this for years, if not decades. And the fact that it's finally in agreement is highly symbolic and very important. There's very little detail at the moment. This is something that people are going to go away and look at the structure of how it will work, who will pay, who will receive the money, things like that. No doubt there will be many arguments to come uh, over those issues. With things like this, people tend to look at the announcement from COP as sort of headlines when really, in many ways, this is the start of a process. It's on the agenda now. And so we will see progress being made in years to come from a pretty slow start. This will pick up in years to come and and will become more and more important. It's very much the high point, I think, of the COP27 agreement. We should applaud that. I totally agree. There was a sense that it was the minimum requirement for this meeting. If we hadn't got this loss and damage agreement over the line, then there really wouldn't be much else of note to take to the next round in a year's time. Are there other positives that you took away? The Global Methane Pledge was an important one. It was something that was introduced in Glasgow last year. And I think about 80 countries signed up there. And it's now about 150 and you've got people like Qatar and Australia have come on board, you know, really big, significant gas producers. The important thing about methane is that as a greenhouse gas, it's very powerful, but it's much shorter lived than CO2. So it falls out in the atmosphere after a dozen years or so. Taking action on methane now has an outsized impact on overall emissions. So the fact that that is growing is really important. The other really important achievement was the Just Energy Transition Partnership signed by Indonesia. It's similar to the one signed by South Africa last year. It's about transitioning the economy from coal. It's a fund, the Indonesian one was $20 billion, which will come from countries such as the UK, the US and the EU. The two biggest coal users in the world are China and India. But outside of that, The two that you would want, I guess, would be South Africa and Indonesia, which is the world's biggest coal exporter. So I think that's a really significant move. It's very much being seen as a model for other countries as well. Although that was the headline agreement, Vietnam is also looking at this, which is another big coal user. And even India has expressed interest in the models. That, again, is very much something that we can look to build on in years to come and could be really significant. So I think those were the two other major achievements. Yes, it does feel that the focus is now on the solutions that can get us to where we want to be. The agreement on whether we need to do it or not, is that's happened. It's now walking fine about how we're going to do this. These are examples of solutions that can work if everybody comes on board, if the finance is there and you know, the, everyone accepts the, the pace of change necessary. 
In terms of negatives then, a big one fairly obviously is the weakening on commitments for cutting emissions and phasing out of fossil fuels from oil emitting countries and from other high emitters. What do you think happened then over the two weeks and why wasn't the momentum from COP26 in Glasgow, which is certainly there, why wasn't that momentum maintained, do you think? Partly it is a reflection of the global geopolitical situation with the war in Ukraine, the energy crisis. There's a supply crunch when it comes to energy supply, so people are focused on the short-term needs to have access to energy. And that has given the fossil fuel producers quite a bit of momentum in terms of not pushing back exactly, but wishing to highlight the importance of keeping fossil fuels for now. Whereas last year, the focus was very much on renewables and the arguments over phasing down use of coal in particular, but also other fossil fuels. So partly it's the geopolitical situation. Partly, I think it's a reflection of Egypt's position as a both an Arab country and an African country. The African side of it was the loss and damage. That was something that, that was important to the African continent. And then the Arab side looked to the Middle East. The next COP is in the UAE. There was some influence from the Middle East producers on the agenda and what was discussed that's one reason. But I think the geopolitics is an important part of it, something that we're going to have to deal with. You are right around the fact that some have been pointing the finger at the Egyptian hosts of COP27 for allowing the weakening of the commitments and for giving their regional neighbours in the Arab world too much influence. The fact that, as you say, COP28 is in Dubai next year, that's been talked about as evidence is that the oil sector in particular has hijacked the process. I mean, do you think that's fair? I mean, there are positives about going to Dubai, aren't there? There's a lot of good green energy stuff going on over there. Well, that's right. The UAE is a huge investor in renewables and other green solutions. And its reputation there, they're keen to protect. Other oil producers as well are doing a lot of stuff. There's, there's also stuff going on in, in Saudi Arabia with some big solar projects. They're looking at hydrogen and things like that. And I think another aspect of this, coming back to the idea of this as a process, is that although there was this weakening of the language over cutting emissions in the agreement, there was the start of a discussion led by India on the idea of phasing down all fossil fuels, not just coal. That won't go away. That will come back next year. India has a year to build support for that. And who knows, it may be something that comes back with a vengeance next year. It's not complete doom and gloom. There is scope for optimism, but it is a shame that the language seems to have been weakened for now. And perhaps there's even another angle on this. If we are going to be in Dubai for COP28 in 12 months' time, is an opportunity to say to the big oil-producing economies, right, you're committing to this net zero approach. Now you've got to show us how you're going to do it. You've got to put up or shut up, as the phrase goes. So maybe that's another positive for next year. There was a bit of criticism also for China not being ambitious enough. President Xi didn't attend. And there was a sense that they weren't really as committed as perhaps they they might have been. What would you like to see China doing better? China is often criticised for not being ambitious enough on the global stage. It's doing a huge amount domestically. It's far and away the world's biggest producer of renewable equipment and also the biggest in terms of installed capacity as well. It stepped back from financing coal plants abroad, and it's also making huge strides in electric vehicles. You need to bear that in mind. I think where people do get frustrated with China is that it's not seen to be engaging enough on the international stage. It's quite internally focused. 
partly that may be to do with its COVID issues and, and its policy towards that. And partly it's this innate caution that it sometimes has in, in foreign affairs. In terms of what it could do more globally, it is to engage more and to highlight the fact that this is not an issue of 190 different countries all tackling the issue of climate change. It is the globe tackling this one issue and, and you know, nobody can do it alone. And, and if China was to throw its weight more behind some of these initiatives, it could make a huge difference. There were positives on the Chinese side in that they rekindled the agreement on climate with the US. They showed up to the Global Methane Pledge and said it was a good idea without agreeing to sign up. Symbolically, that's important and probably quite a big step for China to say something like that. So they could be doing more, but they weren't overtly obstructive. That's a small positive. Do you agree then with the commentary that there was a bit of an inflection point at COP27 with a sense that the 1.5 Celsius pathway isn't really now still alive and that the focus needs to be to switch to really coping with climate change impacts and keeping it to two degrees. Do you think 1.5 Celsius is still viable? It's not currently viable. The current projections are for well over two degrees. People tend to look at it as an absolute thing set in stone for 2050. Just because we're struggling to get to 1.5 at the moment, that doesn't mean we should give up on it as an aspiration. And if we go over that, then we just need to do more to bring it back down towards 1.5. And I don't think that you should, if you abandon thoughts of 1.5, you immediately then move to 2 degrees. If 1.5 is not possible, the task is to try and keep it to 1.6 or 1.7. Every 0.1 of a degree that we can limit temperature rises to, that's billions of dollars of damage not done and crops not lost and floods not happening or not being as severe. If it's not happening at the moment, it doesn't mean that we can't bring it back at a later point in time. It's definitely not something we should give up on. The ambition should still be there, even if we overshoot and then have to come back by taking carbon out of the atmosphere or whatever technology we come to use. It's a great point. I mean, I think you're right. We must maintain as ambitious an approach as possible, even if that means that there's an overshoot and a sense of coming back to 1.5 in the future, but certainly maintaining as much ambition as possible and as much pace of change as possible is, of course, essential. Thinking forwards then, Mike, what are the main challenges for business in 2023 then related to climate change? Coming back to the 1.5 goal, if we do exceed that, and if you look back at the weather this year, the, the climate impacts that we've seen this year, which have been horrendous, huge heat waves in the Indian subcontinent, the floods in Pakistan especially, but everywhere from the US to Nigeria to Europe to Asia, we've seen the damage that climate impacts can do at 1.1. While we still need to maintain a focus on mitigation, cutting emissions as much as possible, there really needs to be a focus on how we adapt to the changes that are coming and that are here. And that is not just for people as citizens and consumers, but it's for businesses in terms of business disruption, supply chains breaking down and having to rebuild those and that sort of thing. There's a real challenge on business adaptation, but also in the absence of strong signal from governments at COP27, business needs to speak up and highlight the importance of this. You know, many businesses have adopted net zero targets. You know, there's a slogan among some of them that they're all in on this. They just need to keep that momentum going. Business and investors have a strong voice in this arena now. 
by speaking up strongly about it, they can have a big impact on how governments react and the policies that they come up with at future COPs. So I think they need to keep that momentum going in terms of ambition, but also be realistic and prepare for the impacts that are coming that are going to challenge their businesses in the years to come. Yeah, I think I would agree with all of that. There's a definite sense of inevitability around impacts and need for adaptation for sure. But that can't take away from the fact that maintaining the momentum towards decarbonisation as far as possible and making sure that government does what government needs to do. It's only so much the business can do, but government is so important and can only really get us over the line in so many different ways. So that's certainly, I think, what I'm looking forward to. Are you going to go to Dubai COP28, do you think, Mike? I don't know. I might do. I have a feeling, actually, we might be pleasantly surprised by it. I've had some dealings in the Middle East over the past few years. It is surprising the amount of stuff that's going on. And also, I've seen a change in attitudes that clearly they're still very fossil fuel focused, but they are looking at the opportunities for low carbon businesses. And also, they're very cognizant of the risks, not just to the region and the people of the region, but to their economies of being so oil and gas focused. It could be interesting. Yeah, it would be good to be there if possible. Well, here's hoping that COP28 can capture the innovation that's certainly very much part of what makes Dubai tick. So it could be, you're right, a very exciting year. Here's hoping. Mike, Scott, thanks very much for your insight as ever. Thanks very much. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the latest analysis and interviews. And do look out for Mike Scott's latest business and climate change column, where he goes into some of the COP27 outcomes we discussed just now in a bit more detail. And if you haven't already done so, don't forget to complete Innovation Forum's trend survey via the link in the description. I promise it takes only a few minutes. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next week, goodbye.